All right. Hey, uh, if you're new with us uh, today, we are doing something a little bit different than normal. And so uh, if you come back next week, I promise it will be a lot different, which would actually be normal. And so what we're going to do today is uh, we are about to, for the next 35 years, journey through the book of Matthew. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, but instead of just jumping right into verse 1, chapter 1, uh, I thought that it would be really, really helpful if we would, as a church, do an introductory to the book of Matthew. And so uh, this morning is going to look a little bit like uh, teaching and then preaching, but I've done a uh, I hope a good job to help you not feel like you're being lectured by a professor because I've, what I've done is I've interweaved uh, preaching into this teaching and lesson to help you uh, not only know what you can expect in the book of Matthew, but how you can even start applying this stuff right now in your life. And I know I get it. Uh, if you're anything like me, your eyes just glazed over the minute that I said introduction to Matthew and lecture. Uh, as a matter of fact, when it comes to writing, which is what we're going to see here, uh, Matthew uh, wrote the whole gospel uh, according to his account of uh, Jesus's ministry. Uh, and if you're anything like me, you're a bad writer, or at least I was a bad writer in high school and in college, and I didn't know anything about themes, about grammar, about syntax, uh, none of that stuff. No, no sentence structure. It was not even in my wheelhouse, nor did I care anything about it. Anybody, anybody in that with me? Okay, good. Well, this sermon is built for you, okay, because I built it with my mind uh, in uh, view so I could help people like you and me look at this and say, wow, what a, what a helpful introduction to the book of Matthew. Because as a matter of fact, I was so bad at writing in school that my freshman year in college, I was making a 68 or 69 in my uh, uh, English comp class, and I passed with a 70. And I think it had way more to do with that professor not wanting me in that class next semester than it did my final exam actually being good enough to pass the class. And so I uh, can uh, understand where you're coming from, and all I'm saying is hold on because I believe this is going to be really, really helpful for you. Because uh, many of us, like me, when we write, uh, we write just the next thought that comes into our mind. Anybody, when you write a paper, it's just, here's what's on my mind right this second, and I put a period, and then the next thing that comes into my mind, I write the next thing. Anybody? I see some head shaking. Let's just, this is admit, admit to commit to admit right now, okay? That's what we're going to do. Uh, if you're not careful, you're going to try to read Matthew that way. And he doesn't structure his gospel that way. As a matter of fact, uh, we're bad at writing. He was great at writing. And so if you look at Matthew as just thinking of the next thing in his mind and writing it down, you're going to miss a lot of what Matthew has to offer for you and I. He's actually a masterful writer. He puts things in boxes and he puts things uh, where it's very organized because he's trying to prove particular things throughout the book of Matthew. And this morning, my goal and my hope is to help you find a new admiration for the gospel of Matthew as we begin studying it here at Compass. Now, uh, the reason that we're going to do this is because understanding the gospel of Matthew allows you to see a couple of things. And it helps you, number one, uh, see that God fulfilled all of his promises uh, through the life, death, resurrection, and the future reign of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the gospel of Matthew uh, is pointing out, is that 
Jesus fulfilled all of those things. All the things that the Old Testament was talking about, Jesus came to fulfill those things. And so if any of you are in here saying, what does the Old Testament matter? It matters greatly because it's a foreshadow and it shows you what we can look forward to. And when Christ came, he pointed back at all those things and said, this is why I'm here. I'm here to fulfill all those things that have been left undone. And so that's partly what we're going to do. Uh, you're also going to see how the major point of the book of Matthew is that Jesus came to save you from the penalty of your sins and initiate the arrival of the kingdom of God. And that's what the whole book of Matthew is about. Christ came to fulfill all of God's promises. He came to uh, save us from our sins and to initiate the coming of the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what we're going to read in the book of Matthew. Now, the problem of this is, and I call it your reason to listen, and this is the reason why you ought to listen to this sermon, is that without a working knowledge of the gospel of Matthew, you're going to have a lot of difficulty uh, understanding and navigating the book. You just really are. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is not going to illuminate the text if you're a Christian in here. Are you going to get something out of the book if you don't understand these things? Sure, that the Holy Spirit is going to help you do those things. Uh, but you know what the Holy Spirit also gave? Gifts to men, according to Ephesians. And one of those gifts is that you would have uh, shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So although that God has given you the Spirit to illuminate the text, he's also giving you pastors to help you understand the text at a greater depth. Okay, so we're on the same page with that. Let God use the Spirit and let God use your shepherd to help you look at this text and understand it uh, for what it truly is. All right, so the first thing we're going to need to know, I'd love for you to even open up your Bible uh, to the first uh, sentence in uh, the gospel. I didn't ask the 9 o'clock to do this, but I noticed it would be really, really important if you did. Go to Matthew chapter 1. You're going to see something really, really important at the very top. Before you even get into the text, it says that this is the gospel according to Matthew. Now, the problem is you've probably heard this word gospel over and over again your entire life, and there's many of us in here who probably don't even know what that word means. And if you don't know what that word means, you're missing out on the rest of the book. If you don't understand what that single word means, you're, just, you're lost throughout the whole book. Because it's important for you to understand that that word gospel comes from the Greek word euvangelion. Can you say that with me? Evangelion. Did you know if you have kids in here, Pastor Evan taught them that Greek word last week. Uh, I was actually walking upstairs at some point, I, I guess it was a Wednesday night, uh, and I was walking up there and walking past the teaching, and uh, Pastor Evan was up there and saying, say it with me, Evangelion. And I'm like, he's teaching kids Greek. Like, what, what kind of church is this, teaching kids Greek? Uh, and so you should know this because all your kids know this. And so the word is Evangelion, uh, and it really just means this, good news, okay? Uh, and euvangelion, if you know a little bit about Christianity, transliterates into the word that we use called evangelism, okay? And so that word evangelism, we transliterate that Greek word into English. Evangelion is evangelism. And evangelism, just in its simple sense, is the word good news. Now, here's why that word means a lot to the original readers, and it should mean a lot to you and I. Uh, because the definition of this word comes from two backgrounds. So the writer Matthew took two different cultural concepts of the word good news, combined them together for you and I to know, to understand what the gospel of Matthew is all about. The first one is this. It's the Old Testament Jewish background. So this word, good news, or evangelion, uh, in the 
Greek Old Testament, which, you close your ears if you don't know this, uh, the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but over time it got translated into Greek, which was the Old Testament that the disciples were actually reading at the time. And so that's why these Greek words matter even in the Old Testament, uh, because the, the writer of Matthew was looking at the Old Testament and saying, oh, in Isaiah 40, in Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 60, in Isaiah 61, this word was used over and over and over again to do something, to announce good news. And so when you see Isaiah, which you know that prophet was foretelling the coming of the Messiah who is going to come and going to make things good, make things okay, to come redeem, uh, whether it's captivity or whether to take their people from sin, uh, Isaiah was doing that. And so you see that in the Old Testament context, to herald good news was part of the definition for that. And as a matter of fact, the direct context of that word is this, that Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, has defeated his pagan enemies, has ended the exile of his people, and established his reign. Right? And if you know something about the Old Testament, what did God do over and over again? He delivered his people from exile. He delivered them from Egypt. He delivered uh, the northern kingdom because uh, well, Assyria took over the northern kingdom. Babylon took over the southern kingdom. And he saved them out of exile. Uh, and he came to reign. And so we see those, that Jewish context, coming to fruition in the gospel of Matthew because when people read gospel, they're thinking, whatever you're about to tell me means that God is going to come and he is going to defeat the enemy He's going to end the exile of his people, and he's going to establish his reign. So that was a very Jewish context of that word, and you see how it already plays into your understanding of the gospel. Because what did God do? He came and defeated sin, right, and Satan. He came to take us out of exile, which was our sin, right? And he came to establish his reign on earth right now through the church and coming in his second coming. He's going to establish his whole kingdom here on earth and then usher in the new kingdom and the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. Are we on the same point? We all good? Say amen if, you, if you're there. All right. So that's already, just from a Jewish perspective, we're already on the same page. Now, the other definition that helps you understand this is the Greek and basically the wider cultural uh, historical understanding of the word uh, that we have for good news, euvangelion. Uh, everyone used this word in ancient times, and it was simply this. Uh, people went to spread the good news when a uh, country or nation was at war and they won the war. They would send a messenger, and that messenger would run to the city and herald the message that we won. And so this definition also helped people see that the victory is won in Christ, that the king has won. The other part of that definition was they would use this in ancient context to also help people understand when a new king was being ushered in or a new king was born. And so kingly succession or kingly birth would also be a reason for good news to be given. And so for you and I to know in a Christian context, those two definitions have to be looked at in view when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, because when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you see both of these meanings as being pertinent to the Gospel. For instance, Jesus came. He's, he is God. Right? He's defeated enemies. He is taking us out of sin and placed us into his family. He's established his reign. Um, he announces victory over our battle. Uh, he is, well, we see in Matthew that the birth of Christ was announced, bringing in his kingdom. And he also, throughout the Bible, even to uh, 
the Gentiles was the king of the Jews. And so you see how even Matthew takes both of those definitions and says, this is who I'm talking about. Are we all on the same page? That is why it's so important that we got to one word that wasn't even in the text and we already spent that much time looking at it. That's why it's so important for you and I to understand what we're getting into when we're reading the gospel of Matthew. And the second thing you need to know after we understand a little bit of the understanding of the word gospel, you need to understand who wrote the gospel. And this is important for you and I, for those who maybe you don't come from the best background, you made a lot of mistakes. Uh, this is important for you uh, because the writer of this book is Matthew. He also goes by another name. You see it in Luke. He goes by Levi. And so Matthew uh, Levi was a tax collector. And who was here last week and we learned about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right? Not such a great guy, right? Uh, he was a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus was. And so all that meant was he got his riches by defrauding other people. Well, the same for the soon-to-be apostle Matthew, that he defrauded people for personal gain. Like his livelihood was paying Rome taxes that, that they needed, and Rome also said, on top of that, you can take whatever else you want on top of that. And so Matthew was that guy. He was a tax collector who defrauded his own people for his personal gain. And so we see in uh, the book of Matthew that Jesus calls him to be one of the apostles. And here's why that's important. Uh, if you were Jesus uh, and you were trying to get your message out to the world uh, in that time, where would you go to get your followers? I would go to Jerusalem. I would go to the temple so I could find the most educated, the most well-rounded, and the, most, and, and the people who understand the law of Moses the best. Because I go to those people and they can help me get my message exactly the way I want it. And they could help me write the gospel out in a way that was educated, in the way that had some name recognition to it. But not Jesus. See, Jesus picked Matthew, who nobody liked. The people hate the idea of, of tax collectors. But yet, Jesus chose him. And throughout church history, and even today, you and I are reading that gospel according to that down-and-out fraud. Isn't that good news for us? That God has chosen to use what is weak right, to shame the strong, and he didn't use the brightest, the best, and the smartest to get his message out to the world. That is a message you should take home with you today. That's who Matthew was. Now, what you need to understand as we jump in is the purpose of this book. And here's, here's what I don't want you to lose sight of. What I'm about to tell you is the most important thing that you're going to understand in the gospel of Matthew. And if you lose this, look at me, if you lose this, you're going you're gonna to miss it. You may understand the flow. You may understand the outline. You may be the best scholar on the book of Matthew that has ever existed. And if you miss this one thing, you've missed the whole, you've missed the whole message. It is simply this, that the purpose of Jesus' mission was stated in the first chapter in verse 21. If you have your book open, you can look there. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, uh, the angel says, You're going to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Say it louder. What is it? Sins. That's the whole context. That's the whole purpose of the gospel of Matthew, right? And we don't have to stop there. That's what it says in the first chapter in verse 21. But then we see in chapter 3, verse 6, John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Christ, preparing the way for Jesus's ministry, literally says that his mission was to call people to repentance, right? To repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then later on in chapter 9, we see Jesus uh, when he is uh, put by a paralytic, uh, and he's talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and uh, 
what, what comes about is Jesus says, I'm going to heal this man, and I'm going to heal this man to prove to you that I can forgive sin. And he says this, what is harder, to heal a man or to forgive their sin? And to you, that's confusing because you understand the gospel and understand the biblical narrative. But to them, there was no contest, right? It's a lot harder to heal an infirmity of a person than to say that you can forgive sin, right? Can we all agree with that? And so Jesus literally says right after that, to prove to you that the Son of Man has authority over sin, he tells man to stretch out his hand and he's healed. Okay, So Jesus literally says right there, the, the goal of that uh, account in that narrative wasn't that Jesus could heal a man. It was that Jesus could heal a man. You hear what I'm saying? It's so that Jesus would forgive sins. Like That was the whole point of that miracle was to show people that he had the authority to forgive sin. And you can't miss it because it's so easy to see the miracles of Jesus and think, Oh, look at all these good things. He's always doing that to point you to the fact that he is who he says he is, and he has the power to forgive sin. Uh, and the final place I'd point you is Matthew 26, 28, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, and he simply says this, that, uh, that this is the new covenant. There was the old covenant, and he came to initiate the new covenant, and he said, this new covenant is done in my blood and, you, and is for the forgiveness of sins. So even the Lord's Supper that he initiated at the end of Matthew was all to point people to, I have come for the forgiveness of sins. And if you miss that, you're going to miss the whole message of Matthew because the whole time Matthew is just pointing at that purpose. Jesus came to forgive for their sins. Jesus came to forgive people for their sins. And he puts other things around it that helps accentuate that main purpose. But the whole book is designed to show us that Jesus is who he says he is and he's come to forgive us for our sins. All right, now we understand the purpose, who it is, the, what the gospel is. Uh, we need to get into some themes, okay? And there are three themes that we're going to talk about this morning. Now, it's not exhaustive. There's probably about 20 to 30 to 40, depending on who you ask, themes in the book of Matthew. I mean, they, they're everywhere. There's uh, geographical themes. Uh, there's the people of God, the kingdom of God. There's uh, heaven and earth, or, uh, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of earth. Uh, and then there's the three that we're going to talk about. There's just so many. And I've picked these three simply to do this. These are the three that I believe will both best help you understand the flow of Matthew. Now, you're going to go find more, and I hope you do. We have commentaries out there for sale if you want to study deeper into this. But what I want you to do is pick three that help me understand better the whole flow of the Gospel of Matthew. And the first one I want you to write down is this. Theme one is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. This is the first theme that we see throughout the book of Matthew. One of the problems that you're going to run into uh, is that we are living here and looking back to there. Uh, and the problem is, is it's hard for us to understand what they heard when they heard the, in the first line of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. See, many people in our world think that Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. Uh, that's not the case. Jesus Christ isn't his proper name. It's his title. It's his first name and his title. Uh, and just to give you a, a good example of how hard it is uh, to understand what was going on back then when you're living here today, uh, if I say Michael Jordan, okay, I'm going to ask you, Michael Jordan, how many uh, NBA championships did he win? How many did he lose? Okay, how, what number was he? Okay, uh, who did he play for? Okay, I just said a name, and you just knew things, right? You just automatically knew what I was talking about. I didn't have to tell you those things, okay? The same thing is going on here. When Matthew is writing Jesus Christ, 
people are like, oh. Like, he said something that they knew. Jesus Christ wasn't his first and last name. Jesus was his name, his Hebrew name, right? Or actually not, it's a Greek. We'll get in there in a minute. Uh, Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. So when he said Jesus Christ, Matthew made a truth claim that anyone who was reading that, who understood what was going on, said, whoa, you just called him something important that they know about. For instance, this, I'll, I'll teach you what Jesus' name is. Uh, Jesus, right, which Hebrew is Yeshua. Okay, that's the Hebrew. But if you, you translate, transliterate that Hebrew word into English, what name do you get? Joshua, right? So we understand Joshua. And so in the Old Testament, just if you didn't know this, the guy's name wasn't Joshua, it was Yeshua, okay? And so Jesus was named Joshua, which do you know what the name Joshua means? The God who saves. And so when you read in the beginning of Matthew, and it says that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from sins, they're just saying this is what the name Yeshua means, the God who saves. And so we see already that his name is Jesus, so that already got people thinking. Of course, Joshua or Yeshua was a common name in that time, but when you paired the God who saves, Yeshua, with the title Messiah, right, which was the Hebrew word Messiah, we get the word Christ, right, which is just the Greek version of that. The Greek word for Messiah is Christos, and so it's where we get Jesus Christ. And so when they said Jesus Christ, or Matthew did, he's saying this is the God who saves who is the chosen one who's going to redeem their people from their sins. You see why it's important to know, the, uh, I guess, the outline and the purpose for this book before we even jump in? Because you're so quick to read over gospel and Jesus Christ before we understand what they meant by gospel and Jesus Christ. And so the beginning of the book tells you that this is God, and he has come to save the world from their sins, and he has conquered his enemies, and he is bringing in his kingdom, all within the first sentence of the book. We learn all those things. Now, here's a problem that you might run into as you study this, uh, and it's simply this. You understand that the Jews had mixed emotions about the arrival of Christ. Some accepted him, many denied him. And you wonder why. What was the purpose of this if he was the God who saves and the one to come? One of the problems was is that the Jews were looking for a Messiah who came to rule and to conquer. Right? His name was Joshua, and what did Joshua do in the Old Testament? He came to rule and he conquered, right? He conquered nations, he, con- he conquered uh, armies, and he was the one who led Israel in triumph over the nations, okay? And he moved them over into the promised land. And so people, the Jews, they were looking for this coming Messiah of the Lion of David who was going to come and who was going to rule and to conquer. And so when Jesus rolls up, uh, they saw a whole different kind of person. They were looking for somebody who was into politics and who was into government, Uh, And what they saw was somebody who was into people's spiritual welfare and how they lived in righteousness for God. So they saw something completely different. Uh, They were looking for a warrior king who was politically motivated. And what we saw is not a warrior king, but someone who waged war against sin and Satan. Right, we wanted, or they wanted somebody who was motivated politically and governmentally, but we saw Jesus who was motivated to usher in the kingdom of God. You see how we, there's this, this difference here in what they were looking for and what actually showed up. So you're going to see that playing through the whole book of Matthew, but here's the good news. The Jews still are looking for a Messiah who's going to rule and to reign and to conquer. Uh, as Christians, what are we awaiting? The return of Christ to rule 
to reign and to conquer. Are we not, is that not what we're waiting for, for the second the return of Christ? Isn't that good news that we see, oh, they just missed a part of the story. They don't understand that Jesus came to first deal with sin, and now he's going to come and he's going to rule and to conquer. It's the same thing we're looking for. We just understand that he first came to deal with sin, then he's going to come to pour out perfect justice and to rule and to reign and to conquer. Well, you're going to see that kind of conflict through the book of Matthew, and you can rest on the other side saying he is going to come and he's going to rule and to reign and to conquer. But that is later, and we'll get, we'll get to that as we study the book of Matthew. All right. Uh, I'll give you some quick references uh, for you to, to point into. Uh, when it comes to Jesus the Christ and Matthew proving that Jesus is who he says he is, the first one you can jot down, the first scripture, is Matthew 1, 1, and verse 16. Matthew 1, 1, and 16. I know we're going to go fast, but I trust that your wrists are fairly warmed up. Uh, you just see it clearly, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, do you know what the Greek word for genealogy is? Genesis. So it reads, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's the first book. What, what, what do we know about the first book of the Old Testament? Its name is Genesis. So we see Matthew playing off of, this was the cre- God created the world. It's called Genesis. And this is the new creation. So we already see Matthew pulling forth a motif from the Old Testament saying, this is the genealogy. This is the genesis. This is the new beginning. This is the new creation. This is the new covenant. And it comes through Jesus the Christ. Isn't that already powerful already? And then verse 16, it says, and he was the, uh, it goes through the line of secession of uh, kingly heir. And in verse 16, it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, right? It didn't say it was his last name. It said, who is called. That's his title. He is the Christ. There's another verse in the middle, because what we're doing, right, we're showing Matthew proving Jesus. this is who Jesus is. We see him in the middle of the book of Matthew, in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18, and he says this. He asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said this, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, that's important because that's smack dab right in the middle of the book of Matthew. And so we have at the beginning, Matthew saying, this is the Christ. We have in the middle this crescendo of a, of a Jewish disciple saying, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's really important for us to see. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's also the initiation of the church right there. And it's really important for you to see this. Uh, Our Catholic uh, buddies uh, think that this is where... uh, uh, this is where the Pope line starts, right? And when Jesus says, you're Peter, and I'm going to build my church on your shoulders, it's not at all what the text is saying. Uh, Peter made a truth claim, and here was simply the truth claim. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says this, on that rock, I will build my church. He said, on the truth that you have claimed that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the foundation of the church. That's what I'm going to build my, that's what I'm going to build my kingdom on. That's, what, that's how the people of God are going to be the people of God because they understand the single thing that you just said. Not because you're Peter the Pope, right? Not because you're going to be Peter the Pope or other popes. He's saying simply one thing. I'm building my church on the truth claim that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And then finally, the, the one you can end with, you should jot down Matthew 27, 50 through 54. Uh, and what that's going to do is it's going to show you that at the beginning, Matthew makes a claim that this is Jesus the Christ. In the middle, you have a Jewish disciple who says, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And in Matthew, at the end, you see a Gentile making the same statement, which is important because one of the other themes of Matthew is the inclusion of Gentiles. So if you're not Jewish in here, you're a Gentile. And so this is good news for us because we see how God is also enlightening Gentiles and helping them understand who Jesus was. So we see that in uh, verse 50. Jesus cried out. This was his uh, crucifixion. And he cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints had fallen asleep and were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, with Jesus, kept watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what had took place, and they were filled with awe and said. Now, this is about the end of Matthew, and so things, it's like, it's like the, the song where Steven Spielberg directs a movie, and uh, Hans Zimmerman is like, you know, telling people, they're playing really, really loud music, and then in the back you see this person going, truly this was the Son of God. Right? Anybody following me right there with that? Right. That's exactly what happened in the book of Matthew. You're at the end of it, and now God had opened the eyes even to the Gentiles to see Jesus and say, truly this was the Son of God. I mean, that's the most cinematic moment in the history of the universe right there, and we see it. And it's Matthew proving throughout the whole text that Jesus is the Christ. So, uh, point number one on your outline, I want you to write it this way. The Gospel of Matthew is going to direct you to identify that Jesus is the promised solution. That's what it's going to do. Write that down on your notes, point number one. Jesus uh, is the promised solution, and you need to identify that. I mean, that's, that's the Gospel to everyone in here right now. You have got to, at a place in your life, identify that Jesus is the promised solution for your sin, for your separation from God, and He's the only way. And that's exactly what Matthew is teaching us there in, point, in the, the first theme. Uh, it also helps us understand this, that Jesus was not just a good guy. Like, I, I love the book of Matthew kind of just obliterates that uh, because most everybody didn't like him. Most people thought he was crazy, and he never just claimed to be a good guy. As a matter of fact, Matthew depicts it either, either he's the son of God or he's a lunatic and he should have been crucified. I mean, that's the, that's the only place you're left in the book of Matthew. Uh, you're, you're never left with this middle ground of saying he was just a good fella. I mean, there was, there was never any room for that in the Gospel of Matthew. Either you saw him as the Son of God who came to take away sins, or uh, he should have been put to death anyway because he was blaspheming against God. And so for us, it helps us to do an evangelism, right? To, this is to our uh, Jehovah Witness friends, our Mormons, uh, or maybe our aunt and uncle, right, who uh, thinks that Jesus was just a good guy. Not, not in Scripture. Not there. You're going to see that in Matthew very clearly. You're also going to see that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Uh, there are over 55 allusions from the Old Testament in Matthew. So if, like, if you want to know what Matthew was doing, he was trying to, says, people think that uh, Matthew wrote his gospel somewhere in Syrian Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, to the top of Israel. Uh, and uh, they were a lot of Jews who were Christians. And what Matthew was trying to do was show Israel that Jesus came to fulfill all those promises. And so 55 times you see allusions to the Old Testament, and 12 times specifically you see, uh, you see a statement that says something like this, and this was to fulfill what the prophet had said. You see that 12 times. And so that's just showing you over and over again that Jesus is the one that they were talking about the whole time. 
Uh, and then finally, Jesus was unapologetically declared the Son of God. I love that because something else our uh, cult friends will, will talk about is Jesus never said he was the Son of God. The whole book of Matthew was written to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, you saw it already in what we just said. Uh, G, uh, Peter said it. Uh, Matthew was alluding to it at the beginning. Uh, and then the, the Roman centurion says it at the end. Truly, this was the Son of God. The entire book of Matthew is there to prove to you that Jesus is God. The whole thing. And so for anyone who says that, well, the God didn't actually say that Jesus was God. You can say the whole gospel of Matthew shows you that Jesus was God. And that was one of the themes that's intertwined within the whole purpose of the book. Is this helpful? All right, good. Let's keep going. All right, the second theme is this, God with us. That's one we like to hear, right? Did you know that God is with us? Uh, he's, not just, uh, he's not just transcendent. He's also imminent. He's not just way out there. He's right here in the Gospel of Matthew helps us see that in a clear context. And the first place we see that is the beginning of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And what we see here, as David is thinking about divorcing his wife Mary because she's been found to be pregnant, uh, an angel comes and says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Remember what, what, what Yeshua means, Yeshua? For he will save his people from their sins. There's just hearkening back to what we said earlier. The, the angel of the Lord says it, like, you know what Joshua means, that God saves. And he's saying here, Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Now, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. There's your, there it is, right? There's the prophet speaking uh, from past, foretelling of Jesus. And he says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so even from the very beginning, the point was to draw a straight line to say Jesus is the Christ, he's God, and he's with us. So we have God who stepped out of time and space, or he stepped into time and space, enthroned in eternity, and he came down and was clothed in humanity to live life with his people perfectly. So we already see that from the beginning of the book of Matthew. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. In the middle, towards the end, we see another reference that I think is really important for you to see. Uh, and if you grew up in that culture, in a Jewish uh, culture in the first century this would be uh, just mind-boggling. But in Matthew 27, uh, verse 51, you see something that is worth us understanding when it comes to the fact that God is with us. Matthew 27, 51, uh, we see that after Jesus uh, was, right when Jesus was crucified, I've already read it earlier, uh, but I'm going to read this part again. It says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so we understand that there was, a, there was a temple, right? In the Old Testament, we had a tabernacle, and God gave them the exact way it should be built. And as they built it, there was this curtain, really beautiful, ornate, very thick curtain that separated the presence of God from the people of God. I mean, there was a separation between God and people because He's holy, and you cannot be in the presence of a holy God. But once a year in that culture, the high priest, after making purification through sacrifice for his own sin, only one time a year could enter into this holy of holies. And when he went into this holy of holies, uh, he would go and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of all of Israel. And if that person wasn't purified rightly, if he did it wrong, right, if he didn't sacrifice right, if his heart wasn't right, he would die. He would just completely collapse in death. That's 
what it was like to be in the presence of a holy God. And so there's something interesting that happens here when Jesus is stretched out on the cross and he cries out and he says, it is finished. And he dies and bows his head. Immediately the curtain of the veil tears in two, which signifies this, that the spirit of God that was not dwelling among men is now dwelling among men. That separation that used to exist where you couldn't be in the presence of God now does not exist through Christ. Now the veil is torn. The separation no longer exists. In Christ, you are able to be in the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Come on, man. This is good. You kidding me? This is great. All right, so you see that, and if you, you can skip over that real quick and not think of the significance in a first century context of how important it was that they said the veil tore. So there, God with us there. And then one of the most famous verses that you all know at the end of the Gospels, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Matthew, we call this the Great Commission. Uh, and it says there in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, like the Apostle Thomas. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen to this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, what a way to end the gospel, right? His God with us. The veil is torn. There's no more separation between God and man through Christ. And he, he's being, right before his ascension into heaven, he says, and I will be with you always. I mean, what kind of, what kind of God exists like that in the figment of anyone's imagination? Not one. There's only one God who does that, and it's, and it's the God of heaven and earth, and it's the God of the Bible, that he is with us. Uh, there's also a, uh, a reference in the book of John that goes along with this. And when Jesus says that it's better that I leave and it's better that I go because when I go, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you. Did you see that? He already said, not only am I going to be with you, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you the spirit of God who's going to dwell in you. He's going to be with you every moment of your life until glory. And then you're going to be with the triune God for eternity. The Gospel of Matthew is a gospel of God being present with his people. And that's the good news for us. And if, if you're Muslim, you don't have that, right? In, in, in the Islam faith, God is so transcendent that you could not know him, that he would not relate to us at all. There is no way of being in relationship to God. And so many other religions and cults have this idea that you cannot relate to God. And they're right in the sense that you can't relate to God. But we can relate to God because he first came and related to us, that he came to walk with us and God is with us. Uh, there's only one way for people to know how to walk with God, and that's the whole point of this part of Matthew, is there's only one way to know how to walk with God, and it's first that God walked with us. And you can put that point number two. It's different on the screen than it is in my outline. Uh, the gospel will direct you to know how to walk with God. I changed the point yesterday, so you could probably put it the way that I just said it. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew will direct you to know how to walk with God. That's really important because you should look at the Gospel of Matthew as a manual on how to walk with God. If you would look at it that way, I think it would change your whole perspective. It's going to teach you how to walk with God. Here's, what, here's, here's who God is. Here's the righteousness that God expects. Here's how you can't fulfill righteousness and, God beca and Christ became our righteousness. And here's how we walk in the family of God. And here's how we walk in the midst of the conflict that we have here on earth. All these things the Gospel of Matthew accomplishes and teaches us how to do those 
things. All right, y'all ready for the final theme? Uh, The final theme this morning is this, uh, and it aligns closely with another theme, the people of God, and this theme is the kingdom of God. We need to understand that these two things align very closely together uh, because the kingdom of God and the people of God are are so intertwined, right? There is no kingdom of God if God's people aren't there. It's just an empty kingdom. And so what we need to understand is those two are very close, but we'll talk about the kingdom of God, uh, and it'll help us understand how we relate as people of God. A simple definition of the kingdom of God is this, God's reign over creation. And you need to put that because if not, you have this weird view of what the kingdom of God is. It becomes super ethereal to you. And I don't want it to be ethereal. I need you to understand uh, biblically the kingdom of God simply means God's reign over creation. Uh, And there are ways that God has reigned over creation in uh, that we can see in Scripture where his kingdom and his people are integrated. Uh, one is in heaven, right? We see in heaven, right, that is the kingdom of God, and it is the people of God, right? And his created beings are all in heaven, uh, worshiping God in perfection, okay? You also see the kingdom of God uh, in Eden, right? In Eden, you see uh, the kingdom of God and the people of God relating in perfect harmony, right? So we see that creation. Uh, we also see it in Israel, and I got into more detail at the nine, uh, but to simplify it this way is to simply say this. Uh, Israel was a theocracy. That was its government. That said, it meant God ruled, right? God ruled over Israel. And so they were, by definition, the kingdom of God and the people of God. And God related to them, and they related back to him uh, in a particular way. And so we see it even in Israel. And that's why God dealt with Israel different than he dealt with all the other nations, because they were a people of God, and they were the kingdom of God. We also see the kingdom of God at work in Christ, and that's really what the whole book of Matthew is about, is the kingdom of God, and we'll learn how that applies to our life, and particularly how the kingdom of God is the church, okay? You should put that down to the church, the kingdom of God in the church. There is a uh, a theological term that we use called the already and not yet. You've probably heard that, right? I mean, there is so much about the fulfillment of the promises of God that are already here. Salvation in Christ, right? The dawning of the kingdom of God in the church. Those things are already here. But they're not yet because just like Israel was waiting for a, a, a ruler king to come and reign to conquer, uh, we're also waiting for Christ to come and to rule and to reign and to conquer. And so Although there's a lot of this already, there's a lot of this not yet that is not yet here. And the church is a great example of the already and not yet. Because the church is already a kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God here on earth. You could call the church a kingdom outpost, right? When people see this church here, it should get them to think, it's the kingdom of God here on earth. It's already here in part. Uh, And it also, as we live in the way that we should as kingdom people, uh, we help people see that the coming kingdom in its fullness is on the horizon, and we should be at work as a people of God telling other people that the kingdom of God is on its way. And we'll get to that in a moment. But for you to understand the church is uh, an outpost of the kingdom of God here on earth. And the last two are this. Uh, the earth during the millennium, right? Christ is going to come back and the kingdom of God, he's going to reign for a thousand years here on earth and we're gonna, that's going to happen. We're going to be here. That's also the kingdom of God and his people are going to rule and reign here in the millennium, the thousand years uh, of his earthly reign. And then finally, which is often the one you think about, which 
to caution you on this part, right? The one that you think about is this, the new creation at the end of Revelation, right? You often think of the kingdom of God as uh, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem that are going to come out of heaven, and that's what we're going to inhabit for the rest of eternity. The problem with thinking that is the only thing in Scripture that is the kingdom of God has you missing out on so much of what's going on in the here and now. If you're only looking forward to that, like no wonder you're not pursuing righteousness here. Like no wonder you're not pursuing God's kingdom here because you think it's not here. Uh, and it's not. You're right. In the not yet, it's not here. But the already is what's here already. And so that's why as a church, as a kingdom outpost, as God's kingdom being visibly seen here on earth in the already portion of the already not yet, we have an expectation to live righteous lives, to pursue righteousness, to go after God, to follow Christ, uh, to do this. And you love the Lord's Prayer, don't you? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is. So there is a... There's, right there is a command right, that we need to understand that the goal in the already part of the kingdom outpost of the church is that the will that we have on earth should be the will that is being exercised in heaven. And so for you and I, there is a real uh, objective reality that the church ought to be every day praying that the kingdom rule of God be evident in this church. The kingdom rule of God be evident in the way that we act, the way that we live, the way that we're married, the way that we raise kids. I mean, you see how all of this is very practical when you understand the outline in the doctrinal position of the gospel of Matthew. Very important for all of us to understand that it's not just a here thing. It's a here thing, and it's a here thing. All right. Woo, that was so good. All right. Uh, just a couple of uh, scriptures just to show you how important uh, the kingdom of God was in the themes of the gospel of Matthew. You have at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4.17, you can jot that down, Matthew 4.17, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the first words in Jesus' earthly ministry were this, his first words. Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so his first words in public ministry was this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you need to repent. I mean, the, the whole book is about people turning from their sins and trusting in Christ. That's the whole purpose of the book, and it's the whole reason Jesus was here. He went proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sin. If you would turn from your sins, you would trust in Christ, you would enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're really observant, you might see there where it says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. Well, Matthew uh, is a unicorn, not in a real sense, but uh, he is a unicorn in this. He's the only person who uses kingdom of heaven. Everyone else uses kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew uses both kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven uh, both, and they mean the same thing. He uses them, he substitutes one for the other, but they mean the same thing. And so anytime in the gospel of Matthew you read kingdom of heaven, it's the same meaning as kingdom of God. He just uses kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. There are some nuanced reasons for that that we believe, uh, but you can just uh, rest to know that they mean the exact same thing. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we already see that Jesus' focus is on the kingdom of God. That's his whole focus as he's here. It's on the kingdom of God. It's on God's reign over creation. Uh, you're going to see in chapter 13 that uh, the focus in chapter 13, we call them the kingdom parables. And so you see a whole chapter of Jesus saying things like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And what he's teaching us is this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is the outward workings of what the kingdom of God is like. And here's how it should work out in your heart, in your life, in your hands. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And this is why we as a kingdom outpost look at uh, things 
things like uh, chapter 13 and say, this is what compass should look like. This is what compass should be like, because that's what the kingdom of God is. And if our will is that in which is going on in heaven would happen here on earth, then that would be our will to apply that to our life and our church here. Amen? All right. We see that. Uh, and I want you to see the final thing in this theme is simply this. Uh, when it comes to the gospel of the kingdom, there was something that was happening throughout the book of Matthew and that is happening to this day that you and I have a part in. Uh, and it's simply this, the importance of the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom. You see, the whole book of Matthew is about the announcement of the kingdom of God. The whole thing was about that. Uh, and the reality is, is that's literally what Jesus was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, did he just came and announced the kingdom, didn't he? Well, he also says something at the end of the gospel that is important for us to understand when it comes to the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 14, it says this, And this gospel of the kingdom, there it is, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we see how important the proclamation and the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom is even to our eschatological timeline. The eschatological timeline says this, that the gospel of the kingdom excuse me, must be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's many people who uh, say, and I've said it before, I don't think it's completely wrong, but we say things like this, uh, when the last person turns from their sins and trusts in Christ and gets saved, then Jesus is coming back. Okay, uh, but this tells you exactly what needs to happen, right? The gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's not necessarily that when the last person comes to Christ, Christ is coming back. It says here clearly that once the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. See, and what does that mean for us? Uh, that means so many of us who do evangelism, uh, we're caught in this, if they don't say, yes, I'm a failure, kind of attitude when it comes to evangelism. Like, if they say, no, I've not done my job as a Christian because I can't. I don't, but that's not what the Scripture is teaching. Right? As a matter of fact, it's teaching this, that uh, the gospel, the proclamation of the kingdom is it's a proclamation. Right? It's me delivering to people and saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so whether they respond by turning from their sin and trusting in Christ or not, or whether they reject it, you still did your job because you did what? You proclaimed the announcement of the kingdom. Right? Your job in evangelism is yes for the no's and yes for the yeses. Like you've done your job just as we have the same job that they did, the apostles in Christ proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. That's the same message that we have. And our prayer is that people would respond by turning from their sins and trusting in Christ. But your job doesn't change even when they don't. And your job is a biblical success when it comes to the content of the kingdom of God because people know. And that's the job that we raise awareness for the kingdom of God. And it would be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. Our goal and, and Christ's goal is to let everyone see this, God's reign over creation. You see, that's why the kingdom of God is important. The kingdom of God is God's reign over creation. Our job is to let everyone know from the ends of the earth, God reigns over his creation and he sent Christ to save his people from sin. And if you would turn from your sin and trust in him, you too could become a people of God. But nonetheless, the kingdom of God has arrived. There's the gospel proclamation, and there's the kingdom proclamation for us, that we get to be part of that here at Compass. Now, what you can find uh, a proof of this is in 2 Corinthians 2. You don't have to jot it down, just listen, unless you really want to. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, it proves this idea of the way that we present the gospel. 
It says, But thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the goal, right? We're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere through Christ. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Did you hear that? We have the same message to people who are being saved and people who are perishing. Here's the difference. To one, we're a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, we're a fragrance from life to life. Did you see that? We share the same message. And to one group of people, those who uh, are being drawn by God and those who are drawn to response to God, we're a fragrance of life to life. Because they say, ah, that's where true life is in. That's where eternal life is found. To the other, we're a fragrance from death to death. People say, I don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't want to follow that. But all the same, the fragrance of the knowledge of him is being spread everywhere and the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Does that liberate some people evangelistically in here? Because it liberated me when I saw this and said, I'm not a failure when people say no to evangelism. I'm still doing my job announcing and proclaiming the gospel and spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's God who saves. I'm just the messenger. And that should be something that gives you great confidence and comfort here this morning. All right, and that's uh, point number three. You need to uh, deal with the here and now while focusing on the kingdom of God. And that's the gospel of Matthew is going to, to direct you, direct you to deal with the here and now while focusing on the kingdom of God. Uh, this is for you to see that you notice the whole time in the gospel, I have not talked about you and me one time other than our part in pro- proclaiming the gospel. Uh, because the reality is, is you're going to find a lot of freedom when you realize that it's not about you anyway. The gospel of the kingdom is not about you and me. The gospel of the kingdom is about God and the, the proclamation of the kingdom is central to the gospels. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll show you where Jesus says that exactly. Uh, Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Uh, Jesus was saying this to people. He was saying, you have all these needs. You, you wonder what you're going to eat. You wonder what you're going to wear. You wonder where you're going to live. You have all these basic needs. Uh, and he doesn't say, I'm here. I, I want to deal with all those for you right now. That's not what he says. Look at what he says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But did you see that? I mean, there were needs, and Jesus' first sentence was, ah, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And a byproduct of you centralizing your life on the kingdom of God, he also says, you're going to have these things as well. These things will be added to you. I'm going to take care of your needs. I'm going to take care of the things that the world is going after. What are the threads that I'm going to wear? What are the shoes I'm going to wear? You know, uh, where's my new whip, right? I mean, I'm talking like a little young person, right? Uh, you know, what's, what's, my new, what's my new house going to look like? All these things, like that's what you're concerned about. And Christ's saying, listen, I know what you need, and it's not the new Corvette. It's this little Ford Pinto, but you're going to be able to get where you're going, Your point is not to focus on earthly things, but to focus on heavenly things. If you're going to focus on heavenly things, you're going to have to focus on the kingdom of God. And your kingdom of God isn't about you. It's not about your new spouse. Uh, It's not about about your kiddos. I'm having a baby boy in November. His name is going to be Titus J. Thomas. I cannot wait. Uh, But you know what? This is not, the world's not about him. Not about him at all. And uh, my goal is to show that child the kingdom of God through proclaiming to him the gospel. And the best thing I can do is to show him that this world doesn't revolve around him, it revolves around God. Uh, That God has uh, made marriage a priority in the home. And that my goal for my child is to show them how important marriage is, because marriage reflects Christ in the church. That's a kingdom principle, that's a kingdom truth. And that my goal is to equip and disciple my son to come to know Christ. 
You see, none of that had to do with giving him everything he wants in his life. It came to give him everything he needs. And everything he needs is found in me seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I know that all these other things that he needs are going to be taken care of through Christ. Did y'all hear that? There's a message for today there. All right, and you can hold me to it. And that's what church is here for accountability. But you have to see that the proclamation of the gospel is central in everything we do, whether it's our marriage, whether it's raising kids, uh, whether it's being generous in your community, to your church, uh, everything you do, whether you're going to school, whether you eat, whether you drink, as, as Paul says, all to the glory of God and the coming of his kingdom. Everything that we do is focused on that priority right there. All right, if you thought you were done, I need about 10 more of your minutes because I want to help you guys uh, tie the knot real good, real good. <laughs> Real good, real good on uh, this. So what you're going to see up on the screen uh, is a, uh, a big giant chart. And if you look on the back of your note sheet, I wrote this chart there for you. So we just learned a whole lot about Matthew, but here's what I want to do for you visual people. At the 9 o'clock, I had so many of you guys that said, this really helped me a lot. And so for you visual people, this was for you, okay? I worked on this just for you. Uh, this is what I call the narrative discourse view of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, there are uh, five people that I picked their brains at least textually, to try to figure out the best way to lay this out for you. Uh, I used uh, D.A. Carson, R.T. France, Jonathan Pennington, John MacArthur, and Hayden Thomas, okay? Uh, There's one of those a lot lesser of a name than the rest of them, but I'll let you pick, okay? Uh, And here's my disclosure at the bottom of this. Any and every outline you've ever seen in your life is both incomplete and uh, people's uh, opinions or thoughts about how it's flown. Now, there is some truth. Uh, when I say truth, there's a lot of truth to the way this is laid out. Matthew lays this out very clearly for the most part, but there's always things that I have to do and that any pastor has to do to, sh- to say, okay, I think he may be saying this and I think he may be saying that. We're just going to put it this way on here so you guys can have a better way to learn it, okay? And so all I'm suggesting is this is a helpful tool for me to you to help you learn how to study the book of Matthew uh, in a chart where you can better understand it, okay? Can we all agree with that, all right? This isn't uh, authoritative biblically. It's not inerrant, but what it is is a helpful tool, okay? And I want to help you guys study the book of Matthew. So let's fill this out, shall we? What you're going to do is you're going to look at the first block up to the top, I guess your top left, uh, and the whole first four chapters is all about the arrival of Christ. Every bit of it is about his arrival and his coming. Uh, And so you're going to see that first four chapters in the genealogy and his birth narrative, all those things you're going to find there in the first four chapters. Uh, You're going to notice the numbers one, two, three, four, and five. Uh, There are five chunks Uh, in the book of Matthew that you can divide these blocks into five different areas. And what you see in each block is a discourse and a narrative. A discourse is a fancy way for a clump of teaching, okay? So you can tell your kids, it's just a clump of teaching, okay? It's a clump of teaching, and the narrative is just like that. It's taking you from one scene to the next uh, as Jesus is heading somewhere. And so you see a discourse one, a narrative one. Your first discourse uh, is obviously what you guys know as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and then the narrative one is chapters 8 through 9. Uh, I want you to head it this way. It's called discipleship. Now, I know he's discipling through the whole book, but what you're going to notice is a focus in this uh, area, in this block of teaching, you're going to see discipleship as a main focus in the life of Jesus and his disciples. You're going to see that through the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, the Sermon on the Mount is basically this. This is what the righteousness of God looks like. He shows everybody uh, this, that your righteousness is not righteous enough, right? He says that you've heard that it was said not to murder. And most of us in here, hopefully right, never murdered. But how many of you have hated someone? Raise your hand if you've ever hated someone. 
You're, you're being told right there that you have now broken the commandments of God. So it's discipleship because all discipleship is for you and I is to see God for who he truly is and to see Christ for who he is. And so the Sermon on the Mount helps you see the righteous requirement, that righteousness is required and none of us fulfill that righteousness in and of ourselves. So you're going to see that there. And then when you get into the narrative section, you're going to see miracles that Jesus does uh, to confirm his identity. He confirms who he is. We just heard that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ. And now he does miracles because he just said, this is what he gave you the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and he told you the law, right? He told you the, the laws of Moses, but he heightened those. And he said, there's why I can heighten those because the reality is, is no one is righteous, not even one. But I'm going to tell you that I have the power and authority over everything. And you notice in the miracles, uh, Jesus will do things like he will have authority over Mother Nature. I hate to say Mother Nature. Uh, he has the authority over creation. That's a better way to say that, isn't it, theologically? All right, he has authority over creation. He has the authority over sickness and illness and weakness. And what he's doing, he's saying, all these things that you're afraid of and all these things that you can't do and you can't fix, I can. And so that's really what you see in the uh, first narrative section. The second discourse, the second narrative, is chapter 10 in the, in the discourse and 11 through 1250 in uh, the narrative. And this is focusing on evangelism. And it's a focusing on evangelism in this way. Uh, this is where Jesus commissions the 12. And this is where he tells them, now I want you to go out into all these villages and all these communities, and I want you to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Uh, and this is what Jesus does. Jesus lets them go do that, and then Jesus then follows behind them explaining his ministry. He goes and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's explaining what he's doing here. And so the apostles are forerunners, sharing the kingdom, sharing the gospel, doing evangelism, and Jesus is going behind them uh, explaining what he's doing here. Then in Discourse 3 and Narrative 3, you see Discourse 13, uh, basically the whole chapter of 13 minus uh, one verse and then you see in the narrative 3, uh, chapters 13, 50, verse 53 through 17, 27. And this is a really important uh, part of the Gospel of Matthew uh, because it talks about entry into the kingdom. He's like, this is uh, what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God. This is how you would enter the kingdom of God. And this is where I told you earlier in chapter 13, you see the kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this. If you want to inherit the kingdom, this is what it looks like. Here's what you do. And all that sums, out, sums up into turn from your sins and trust in Christ because you remember the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew was simply this, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And so over and over again in all these parables, you need to look for something particular. What is this parable saying about my sin and saying about how I turn from my sin? If you start reading the parables that way, they'll all start making sense. Because you'll notice in the parables, Jesus is telling people how to turn from their sins and trust in him. Here's people who do, here's people who don't. He's giving you case studies and lessons on how one becomes a Christian. Uh, you're also going to notice that conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth increases, right? Christ came to usher in the kingdom of God, uh, and we're fighting against the kingdom of, of earth. That's the reality, right? We know that in our own life. You have the spirit and you have the flesh, and you're at battle with that every single day in your life. Well, uh, this part of the book of Matthew helps us see that the conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth is a real thing in the book of Matthew, and it's increasing as Jesus is doing something that I'll show you in a moment. Uh, and then this is also the really important part. Do you notice that Peter confesses Jesus at the very middle of the Gospel of Matthew? Remember, that was really important because it shows you this is a, a pivotal part of the Gospel of Matthew when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
Uh, then you see in Discourse 4 and Narrative 5, uh, verse 18, uh, or chapter 18 in the Discourse, and then the narrative is uh, chapter 19 through ver- chapter 23. And here, you're going to see New Family Ethics. I titled it New Family Ethics because what you see uh, throughout these chapters is how Jesus says, this is how you deal interpersonally with the people of God. And this is how you should deal with every... He talks about uh, you need to be like a child, like you need to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying we all need to go be little kids. He's saying that's the demeanor in which you should deal with people and, and God, right, in that kind of context. And he talks about how that fleshes out in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ and the people of God. Oh, I can, there it says it right there. Interpersonal relationships in the kingdom of God. Uh, and then the rest of it, the narrative section, as Jesus is going scene by scene, it talks about interpersonal relationships in the kingdom of God continued and applied. He gave it to you in parables. Now he's fleshing it out in real life and actually dealing with people the way he taught. Like, that's a pretty bold teacher. Let me teach you how to do it, then follow me as I deal with people that don't like me and show them how to apply these kingdom parables. That's pretty bold, isn't it? All right, final one, Discourse 5 uh, and Narrative 5. Discourse 5 is uh, uh, chapters 24 through 25, and you will know this one as uh, the Olivet Discourse. So how many of you know the Olivet Discourse? Three people, good, all right. Uh, You're going to notice that this is all about the coming judgment. This whole last part of the book of Matthew is all about coming judgment. And you see in the Olivet Discourse that uh, Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom. You see a lot of eschatological truths being poured out there in the last few chapters. Uh, The second coming of Christ and the final judgment are foretold there. And so all of the judgment that is being pronounced, Christ lays it all there in that discourse. And something really beautiful and poetic happens. Right after that, the judgment of Christ for the sake of sinners happens. Did you see that plot movement? That he's saying, judgment is coming, I'm coming back, and I'm going to receive my people, uh, and my people are those who have trusted in me for the sake of their righteousness. So he, he pronounces judgment, and that he receives the judgment that we deserve. Did y'all see that? Wasn't that really awesome? That he then gets judged, and he gets crucified, and he gets beaten, and he gets put to death uh, for our sin. And so they pronounced the judgment. He was then judged for us. And the truth there was, if you didn't trust in Christ, the judgment is still coming, but yet your righteousness and your entrance into the kingdom is based solely on you and not on Christ, which the Bible teaches no one is righteous, not even one. All right, uh, and then, oh yeah, this is really good. Uh, the Roman centurion confesses Jesus as God. We just talked about er- this earlier, and you see now how the beginning of it, of the, uh, the gospel of Matthew, you notice how they talk about him being the Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Peter confesses Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and he's a Jew. And here at the end, you see a Gentile Roman centurion also confessing that Jesus is God. And so it's kind of like this big culmination in this giant crescendo of Jesus dying for sins and even the Gentiles belong. Isn't that really, really cool? All right. Uh, last part is, or the last part of the actual flow, is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Y'all know that Christ's commission to say, I've taught you guys about discipleship. I've taught you about evangelism. I've taught you how to come into the kingdom of God. I've taught you how to live in relationships with people. And I've taught you about the coming judgment. Did you notice those five up there? I've taught you how to do all those things. Now go and teach other people likewise. Okay, so that's the flow. Uh, There's three blanks that I want to show you that helps you understand as the movement of Matthew is going, this is going to help you understand what in the world is going on. 
Uh, the first is this, the ministry in Galilee. You're going to notice that a, a large portion of Matthew is in the ministry of Galilee, uh, which is important uh, for us to know as we look at Matthew 16 and 17, you see that line, and he goes from Galilee on the road to Jerusalem. And if you notice something in the box above that, there is a relationship between Jesus beginning to go to Jerusalem and the conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God increasing, right? As he gets closer to Jerusalem, the conflict increases, right? This should show you something when you're reading to understand, uh-oh, something's about to happen, okay? And then he spends uh, most of the last part of his ministry there in Jerusalem, which should show us something. If you're a Jew and you're in the first century and you're, and you're reading the gospel before you become a Christian, uh, you see him in Galilee and you're like, oh, that's terrible. What's he doing in Galilee? Because uh, Galilee and the land of the Gentiles, right? A lot of the Jews knew that. Why would he be over there? He needs to leave. He needs to get to Jerusalem because Galilee is a terrible Gentile place. And, but you notice they don't like the Gentiles. They don't like Galilee. But it, they notice something else. As Jesus moves towards the holy place, Jerusalem, the place where all the Jews have a lot of pride in and the place where they believe that the Messiah is going to come and set up shop and rule the world, uh, as he gets closer to there, the plot thickens. People aren't agreeing with him. People don't like him. There's conflict rising. And so as he goes to Jerusalem, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be great. He's going to win. And then when he is in Jerusalem, he gets killed. Right? So you see, if you're, if you're Jewish, if you're in that time period, you're like, oh, no, that didn't work out the way that it was supposed to this whole time. And so it's meant to help you see that from a geographical standpoint. Uh, and then when you get to the end, I love this. Okay, watch the last slide. Do you see where the Great Commission was given? The Great Commission was not given in Jerusalem where the holy people and the, you know, the, all the religious teachers were. Jesus was crucified in this place where he should have belonged because he was there to fulfill all the things that those people were living for, and they didn't see it, and they rejected it. And Jesus, instead of giving the Great Commission there, he says, go back to Galilee in the land of the Gentiles, and on that mountain I told you to go, go, I will see you soon. And he goes to that mountain and he says, now Go and make disciples of all nations. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that poetic? That he didn't give that message there with the people who expected it and they should have received it. He went and took it to people who had no idea. He went and took it out and gave it to the disciples to say, now go into all the nations. And that's the beautiful makeup and story of the gospel of Matthew. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that this fly over of the book of Matthew, that it's fruitful and helpful. God, that you would help us see this gospel for what it is, that it teaches us about Christ who came to save sinners. And the way that your apostle Matthew wrote this out accentuates and magnifies so much of the truths of, that you want us to know. And my prayer God, is that you would illuminate the scripture to us, that your spirit would help us understand it and look at it. And I just pray that this was helpful uh, for our congregation, God. I pray that, you, that it was, the outline was helpful, the flow, the themes, the narrative, all those things uh, came together to give us a really good grip and grasp on the gospel as we spend uh, a, a lengthened uh, time on the 28 chapters of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, God, not for our mind's sake, it's not just that we would have more information God, but that you would uh, use it to transform our lives uh, and that as we talk about your kingdom, that it would impact our heart, it would impact our mind, and it would impact our hands for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray those things in Christ's name. Amen.